This is a Federal News Network podcast. When you think about the GWACs and you think about the, the sort of pressure and focus that the past couple of administrations, as well as this one, have had on the GWAC process of trying to push towards more streamlining, more commoditization, more harmonization, you know, those are uh, and, and were. I mean, I worked in OMB on a lot of these issues when I was there. You know, it's very well intended purpose, right? To try and streamline requirements, to try and, uh, you know, bring in a large vendor pool to give access to as many vendors as possible, uh, to try and to commoditize the products and services you're buying. But the, the technology market, especially on the services side, is moving so much faster than where the GUX can keep up. And so our, the, the intent of the paper is, to move away from the focus on that commoditization and streamlining and more on what are we doing to bring access to innovative uh, products and services onto those UX? How are we keeping the product catalog and the service catalog fresh so that as agency appetites and agency buying preferences evolve, these UX can, can be more sort of customer oriented. And then as all of these new capabilities are springing up, what can we do to actually get real-time better evaluation and onboard new and interesting companies that want access that the GUX provide, but are in a lot of cases sort of pushed out of that ecosystem because of the rules and the, and the policy priorities that were put in place several years ago. So for us, it was a way of looking and saying, what's a, what's a very narrow but significant issue that we can dig in on that will help the administration that will help uh, the federal buying community and then ultimately drive better outcomes at agency. We're going to link to the white paper on federalnewsnetwork.com so everyone can read it. It's only nine pages, which as a journalist, I appreciate not a 400-page report that I have to sift You're through. welcome. You're welcome. I want to bring up a few things before we jump in deep into the, the white paper itself. If you think about when GWACs were put together, it's, it's really the mid to late 90s. There has not been a lot of reform around them since then. Are you seeing that, that maybe the timing of your white paper and some of these other changes that are happening in the community is, is, are coming together? And maybe it's just there's a need to have somebody, in this case ADI, kind of say, hey, let's look at it from a, a broader, the 50,000 foot view. So that's exactly where we were leaning when when the idea for this white paper first generated up from, from a lot of our membership. So some of the ideas in here are definitely sort of member generated, but others are recognition of some of the good one-off activities that we're seeing at NIH or at NASA or, or in different parts of GSA and wanting to lift those up and say like, here are good things that are happening. And again, like just because this paper is focused on GUX, I think a lot of the recommendations are pretty universal, right? So if you wanted to scale them out to the entire Mac universe, you can. If you want to apply them to individual agency procurements, you can. And so this is our chance to kind of take the, the good and the bad that we've seen, especially over the past year and a half and the opportunities that COVID and the sort of shift in the procurement mindset that has come from the response and recovery efforts. Let's go through some of those recommendations. There's seven in all. I want to start with one of them that really stood out to me, Matt, which is this idea of improve onboarding and offboarding. And I think that's been a big sore spot on a lot of these multiple award government-wide acquisition contracts. That's why they get caught in this protest hell, I'll call yeah. it, because once you're on, you're on, but if you don't get on, then you're not on, and they're 10 years exactly. or they're longer. Talk a little bit about that idea of the onboarding, offboarding as a way to kind of 
help refresh the, this idea, the concepts behind UX? The onboarding is certainly an issue, right? The, the sort of previous process of like, if you're on, you're on, you're there for 10 years. So that's a tremendous barrier to, to innovation, especially for a lot of small and medium sized companies who plan to grow over that time and don't want to be locked into just one particular GWAC, right? Like they don't want to place their business bets today on what's going to happen 10 years from now. So like they want access to be able to move around to these GWACs as their business grows, as they you know, might acquire other companies, as they develop new product lines, stuff like that. I think the, the offboarding piece was what we heard even more vociferously from our members. It's even if we're on, you know, there's lots of people, lots of these companies, a lot of these legacy incumbents who just who get on every GWAC because they know how to play the game. They know how to they know how to answer the questions. They know how to structure their answers to meet the evaluation criteria. They've got large teams that can do that. But then they'll sit there. They'll not win work. And if, if they stay on, then that's one less spot or a dozen less spots or, or even more that new companies who are desirous of, of being on that GWAC and actually want to want to compete for work want to go, you know, at the task order level, trying to get work from these agencies, you know, those folks are not able. So a big part for us is, sure, there's definitely things that can be done to improve the speed and aperture, as you will, of onboarding to allow that to be continuous and evolving. But for folks that are on and are not winning work or not putting their best efforts forward or, you know, are, are maybe trying to compete, but just not doing a very good job and not winning any work. Well, that should be its own evidence of, you know, the customer saying like, this is not the product and service capabilities that we want. Like, these are not the people we want to work with. So bring us, bring us new interests. And so I think that is, that's really powerful. And just because someone gets off board, it doesn't mean that they can't retool their, um, their proposal. They can't retool um, their catalogs. They can't come back in, but it's not enough to just keep piling more and more people on there. Uh, it's also a recognition that the, you know, the, the managers and the administrators of these GWACs, they really have to be a sharp, smart focal point for what's happening in the market and ensure that the, the contracts that they're putting out there that folks can access actually have the solutions that their customers want. So in a way, we look at it as, a, as one of the most fundamental kind of customer-focused reforms that, that we put forward in the paper. There's plenty to talk to about that, but let me jump to another one because I think it's also a, an issue I've heard time and again, which is you all write about leveraging commercial use cases. And when I read through it, it was really about commercial past performance. Why is this idea so important? If we've got companies that are doing tons of work for these large multinational companies that operate on tons of different sets of regulations and business processes and counting and like all this sort of stuff, surely that has some analogous effect to working with a bureau or a department or, you know, a commission in the federal government on a particular issue that they might have. And so again, it's in the white paper is not trying to detail out exactly how to do this, right? There's no roadmap to reform, but it is encouraging those folks in the GWAC community, those folks in the acquisition community to work with us and to work with other companies like those that we represent to say, you know, where, where can we get better validity on commercial use cases versus sort of, you know, the requirements and the processes we have to work with inside government. So it is certainly not an easy problem to solve, but you know, we have heard enough from folks inside government that they are saying, you know, we want to learn more about what ADI members are doing in the commercial marketplace. We want to know how 
those examples can be easily interpreted in the way that we have to do things inside the federal government. So in reality, that's just a, that's just a recognition that there's more to be learned on both sides and this sort of bridge building, the dialogue, and to really sit down and detail that stuff out, you know, illuminate and elucidate those use cases and, and make them applicable in the federal space, I think can lead to a lot of long-term benefit. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. 
And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees 
And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.